Hello, welcome to Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for every year of the 20th century. I'm Sandra Newman, and I'm here with my co-host, Catherine Nichols, and today is our second episode about Anton Chekhov, and we'll start by continuing our conversation from last week about The Cherry Orchard, his play from 1903, and then we'll talk about two short stories of his, Ward Number 6 and The Lady with a Little Dog. So, Sandy, this is the first um, episode of Lit Century where we are smudging the edges of the um, 20th century. And since you're the person who chose these two Chekhov short stories to talk about under the aegis of the cherry orchard topic, <laughs> chose two actual 19th century short stories. Do you want oh, to no, talk one about of them- 20th century. One of them is 20th century. One of them is 20th century, but I can't remember which actually. Um, I'm seeing an 1899 and an 1893. I don't know which of those you're counting as the 20th century, but um, I think that you should talk about what the stories are and why you chose them. Oh, okay. Well, I chose these stories just because they're they're probably the most canonical of Chekhov's short stories. Um even though I'm going to talk about some some other short stories of of his that are maybe more typical of his like mature work, um, but these but these are are much the same in theme. Like the theme is always this this kind of social hopelessness, which is very very much a part of Russian literature of this time. Um, so anyway, like talking about this as leading into 20th century literature it's it's kind of interesting okay now now i I wanted like not answer your question but say something else is that okay (laughs) of course (laughs) (laughs) okay so this is my this is my thought about like Chekhov leading into the 20th century and it's actually like the the short stories for me like lead into the cherry orchard which gets us into the 20th century in a particularly Russian way. Like the, the Russians are like the, kind of the inaugurators of the 20th century via the revolution in some ways, like at yeah, least yeah. huge trench of 20th century-ness um, is very Russian. They were and, Russian in. What? They were Russian in to the 20th century. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe you went there. But okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to cut it. I'm keeping don't it. Cut it. No, don't, don't. Okay, so, so, so. Anyway, like the, the cherry orchard. We talk so much about like the social aspects of the cherry orchard, and I'm still fascinated by them. And I just wanted to to talk about the like, cherry orchard is 1903. Um, and this is like I'm. This is the peasant uprising of 1905 to six, which kind of presages like what will happen in the revolution, you know, a little over 10 years later. But but this is like literally happening two years after the cherry orchard in those same places, those same estates like the one in the cherry orchard. So like this is like a scene from the countryside. Several witnesses noted how the night sky was illuminated by the amount of burning manors and how long lines of peasant carts drawn by horses filled the roads packed with stolen items. 
In the violence, there was also much culture smashing, and peasants went out to destroy anything that smacked of superfluous wealth, setting fire to libraries, smashing antiques, and dumping feces on the expensive oriental carpets. Some also seized the expensive works of art, the fine china, and the luxurious clothes, and divided it amongst themselves along with the captured farming equipment. So, so there's, so that's actually like kind of, I guess, I'm probably belaboring the same points from last week. But we're talking about that, like that's the peasant side of things. And I think the short stories in Chekhov, at least the most successful ones, are very much about the kind of spiritual sterility and emptiness of the people who are parasitizing the peasants. And there's always this kind of undercurrent that it's that parasitism that means that the source of life is ultimately poisonous. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, where was that? The, the passage that you read, where was that from? I think it's Wikipedia actually. <laughs> like, okay. Completely honest, but, um, no, it's fine. I just, I just wanted to, to make sure I understood. Yeah. There's definitely a sense that the energy of society is not in any of the places he's describing. Um, in these short stories that so we have uh, Ward number six and um, the lady with a small dog, the feeling of vitality and uh, like interest in life that um, Lubakin has in uh, Cherry Orchard, you really don't see that in any of these characters. No. And, and I would say also that generally speaking, um, the view that, people of Chekhov's class had of the peasantry and the working classes in Russia, not just during this period, but also in the 20th century, right up to the present day is not positive. It's not like a Lopachin image. That's actually a very rare sympathetic image of a person from the peasantry, um, which, I, which I think is related to uh, the Chekhov's family was actually like originally a family of serfs, so he has that kind of heritage. But generally, the image of lower class people is much more like the character in Ward Number Six of Nikita, who just beats on people mindlessly. Um, it actually kind of reminds me of something I, I read a long time ago about um, the advertising image of the Marlboro Man not translating well in many other countries, but um, in China specifically. But the idea of a sort of scruffy working man, there's no cool version of, of the Marlboro Man cowboy mystique in, let's say, in Chekhov's short mm-hmm. stories. Yeah. Well, well it's interesting. Like Russia, this, this is, um, I, get, I guess the, there was a huge dichotomy between how the working classes saw themselves and how they were seen by the upper middle classes, and that still is the case. I think we're let's let's go to specifics. I think we're we're kind of sliding into talking about Ward Number Six here, and I will give like a brief pressy of the plot. Um, basically, the main character is the doctor who works in the hospital. It's sort of the public hospital of a very small town in Russia. And he is a sort of a disenchanted man who really does nothing but read books, doesn't really do his job, lets the orderlies steal from the patients, lets the hospital fall into 
repair and be infested by insects. And one day he just happens upon like the annex where the psychiatric patients are housed and meets a man, Gromov, who has been like locked up for, I guess, paranoid schizophrenia or some sort of paranoid disorder in this annex for about a decade, something like that. And in Gromov, this doctor finds the first kindred spirit he has ever met, and he becomes fascinated with him and begins to spend all his free time in this like dingy, disgusting, stinking, cold psychiatric annex. And finally, the townspeople decide he too is insane and deprive him of his job and lock him up inevitably in the psychiatric annex too, at which point he discovers exactly what he has been condemning his patients to. The story reminded me of a conversation that we had once, um, a written conversation um, where you asked if I think that there's hope for humanity. And I think I said that I did because I felt that not having hope for humanity was a morally bad position to hold whether or not, like, I didn't think it was like a a belief in the future of human species. Um, Like I wasn't looking at the information to decide, is there in fact hope that this is going to all turn out for at least some number of us? Mm -hmm. Um, It was more like, I think that um, failing to hope uh, puts you in a bad moral orientation toward um, reality and other people. Um, and you answered the question also. And I think that you said something more negative and I think that you may be right, but reading this story, I was thinking about that question and thinking that I think, I think Chekhov's position is that you can get incredibly tired when you think about how much suffering there is, especially if you're in the role of a doctor, like if you're somebody who's actually uh, trying to alleviate suffering in some day-to-day way, that the number of patients you see, the degree of their trouble, the small amount you're able to do to alleviate their suffering, the difference between a what is it like a cart driver or something? He says like, well, who cares if he lives five more years or 10 more years? Yeah. They're all, it's like, everyone's just going to die. Um, There's a really relatable form of burnout. And it seemed like a very modern form of burnout too. Word number six also underlines, which is part of, I think your point in that conversation you're talking about the fact that ab- giving up hope can just be a, a lazy way of abdicating responsibility you decide yeah. there's no hope and it's hopeless and therefore you're off the hook. It's okay. You can just lie back and read books and, and meet with your your pal to get drunk. <laughs> um, it does sound good, you know. Um, it sounds like a good plan. Yeah, um, and I think we all do that to some degree, of course. But It's a very reasonable response to being exposed to more suffering than you can really hold in your mind yeah um 
especially the suffering of people who are unpalatable to you? Yeah. Um, th- yeah, th- there's a aesthetic dismay also in seeing how bad the conditions of their lives are, how ugly the interior of the this building is. The- yeah, there's a, there's a tendency to, on the part of the power-possessing classes, to let the other people fall into a state in which they can be... Um, treated with contempt. They can be scorned because of the disgusting state they're in. And then that justifies further neglect and exploitation, etc. Yeah, I think that the there's one of the people that's constantly getting beaten who's very fat and they just lie in bed all the time. And so mm-hmm. the, the Nikita just um, beats him all the time. And the sense that his body, like it couldn't really be as sensitive as another person's body, but it obviously is. Yeah, and he is the embodiment of that notion, actually. You know, he's the bottom of it, where you just see him as being completely lacking, or he is framed by the narrator as being completely lacking in any human feeling. And therefore, he just exists to be abused. And I think that the that um, the main character of the story, the doctor, is punished for that despair. He's completely, it's it's really a satisfying story. And <laughs> also a really horrifying story because in a way you, it, it's one of those cruel kinds of realism where you're forced to identify with the doctor to some degree. You can Im- You can imagine being him and being in this place where there's no hope of any human contact and he's, living in a kind of a comfortable depression. Yeah. So you, you can completely imagine being him and, and feeling the kind of suppressed guilt of his condition that he never acknowledges, but then to be punished for it. <laughs> <laughs> like, what if you were punished for every tendency like that in yourself? And he is, he is punished to the full extent of the possibilities of that world. Yeah, I, I think about the the genre of books that I've complained to you uh, in real life about quite a lot, which is um, people complaining, like wafting around, feeling bad and complaining about features of the modern world that don't directly affect them, but that they feel bad about. Yeah. Um, if, I mean, this... This is <laughs> this is one of those books, except they get punished at the end for being like that. Oh, and the most cruel thing about it, like I every time I've, I've read it a number of times and every time I read it, the thing that pushes me over the edge into just horror is the fact that his one friend in life, the one person who he values and cares about, Gromov, who's the, the psychiatric patient who lured him there in the first place just by being a human being, story ends with Gromov just laughing at him maliciously. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. And Gromov is just just sadistically pleased that, he, that he's been subject to this pl- fate, which is completely understandable and completely just and correct. But, but when you're kind of forced to, to identify with that character who actually has to live with that, and then Chekhov kind of lets him off the hook, actually, like as as an as an older person who's perhaps a bit tougher, I think 
I, I can I can kind of see why he had to do this because otherwise the story is too horrifying. It becomes sort of an I have no mouth but I must scream kind of story without this. But then the doctor dies conveniently on his first day, so <laughs> merciful. Yeah. Um, I was thinking that there there was something that seemed in a in conversation with presaging whatever uh, Kafka with, and then it I think becomes much more of a trope, the idea of the person who's in the asylum because they know something true about society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, just the idea that uh, that this character he becomes afraid that he will be the victim of random state violence. Yeah. But then he is. So he is, yeah. <laughs> Therefore, he is. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's so it's so funny because I I mean one thing that I love this story for is that there's never any question that this character Gromov does have a mental illness and can't function yes. in the world. He really does. But but it's so clear that you know that what's done to him makes no sense at all. Yeah, that it's it's. It's not a treatment for mental illness. It's just a removal um, into a worse place. Yes, it's punishing people for embodying the truth that society is is essentially evil. He's he's afraid of something that really happens to people, that happened to his own father. You know that that you could yeah. just be dragged away by the authorities at any moment for something that you didn't know you had done, um, and that's a that's a true and reasonable fear, but you're not supposed to express it and therefore he has to be locked up. So when I read Chekhov writing about that or I read Kafka writing about that, there's something dignified about those to my mind because I think they're writing about circumstances and people who are actually in that condition. When I think about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest it feels like a trendy fear. Um, do you have that feeling also? You know, I want to agree with you because I've always had an attitude about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But for me, it was the kind of attitude that prevented me from ever reading it or watching the movie. Oh, well, I, I, I did read it. But, yeah. but you can talk to me about the cultural meme that there is actually no such thing as mental illness that it's just a way that people punish truth tellers. I don't know, something that seemed really popular to think or say in the, like, let's say sixties and seventies. Well, we've kind of, we talked about a lot about ableism on this podcast so far, and this seems like a good point to say that that seemed almost like a way that I can't think of what it would be like disabled face, you know? Yeah. A way that people who don't have mental illness want to jump into the skin of people who have mental illness and act like they are the victims. Um, yeah, or that um, if people do have mental illness, then they do deserve to be treated like this. That The thing is like, oh, this person yeah. is actually yeah. very sane and a truth teller, and that's why they shouldn't be abused, not that nobody should be treated that way. I guess the thing that, the thing that I wanted to, the, the important thing from that is just that I think this feels like the seed of a meme that um, where, it, as far as I can tell, he's saying something sincerely that he has not heard other people saying to him 
that later became something that people would say to each other all the time in a kind of trite way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that does not at all take take into account the many complexities of what the original statement was. Yes. And I think that this original statement is actually fully at the level of complexity that you could wish for. Yeah. Even in the way that it says that that common mental illnesses are actually expressing something about society and they have content. They're not like contentless and meaningless things that can be dismissed as madness. Yeah. And that that could be both the depression that the doctor suffers initially, the burnout that he feels, and also the paranoia of um, the other character. Sorry, I'm blanking on his name. I told you Um, I would do it and now I do it. Um, so do you want to talk about the, um, the lady with the small dog? Yes. Okay. So the lady with the little dog. Okay. Um, again, I'm going to tell you the, the story, very simple story. So, um, a character Gurov, a man who's kind of a married man and he's a bit of a ladies man. And it talks about his misogyny. It's really, I think it's really interesting. Like in a couple of sentences, Chekhov sums up a, per, a particular genre of misogyny where Gurov, like is bitter about women and refers to them as the lower race, but also only feels comfortable with women and really only likes women. So he's not just always having affairs with women. He also hangs out with women and enjoys their company. So it's he's just this kind of strange character who I guess kind of has this need to to hate this aspect of himself. Anyway, he's in, in Yalta by the sea on vacation away from his family. And he sees this woman walking around with a little dog. She's out walking her dog, the lady with the little dog. And he meets her and they have an affair. Um, and it ends and he goes home. But then he finds he's haunted by her. For some reason, this woman and no woman before her um, haunts him. And he ends up like going to the town where she lives, like in the middle of nowhere, and finding her, like tracking her down and getting her to agree to meet with him. And then we jump forward and there's a denima where they've been meeting regularly for a while. And their, their relationship still isn't public and they're stuck in their marriages. And they are just deeply kind of poetically in love and there's no solution for this situation. And there's something about this story, like it's a really, really simple story. But um, just just to say, it's like sees the imaginations of generations of writers. There, there's something about it, something about the simplicity of it, and the way it's presented, that is incredibly powerful. And I and I think a lot of it is about the uh, Gorov at the end, talking about how he now feels that when he looks at people, he's not seeing them. He's seeing something external and meaningless to them. And everybody actually has a second secret life, which is the one that contains everything that's true and interesting and important about them. So I have to admit that I don't like this story that much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not one of the generations of writers. Um, I think that's interesting too. You know, some people, some people just do not get anything out of Chekhov short stories. 
I wouldn't say that I don't get anything out of any of his short stories. I'm just going to just say this one for right now. And I don't get nothing out of it. It just doesn't, it just doesn't make the world that much bigger for me. Well, I think it's interesting because, um, Hmm. Okay. I'm going to kind of go sideways at this. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about a figure throughout all of Russian literature, which you've probably heard of the, the superfluous man and the superfluous man who exists. He's just, he is the hero of Russian literature in the 19th century. And he's Yevgeny Onyegin. He's like all the all the major characters of Turgenev. He's Oblomov, and he's certainly like most of the heroes of Chekhov. And he is a person who is very well-meaning, and and thinks a lot, but ultimately is just good for nothing, and has no place in society. And he's you know he's called the superfluous man a little bit um, compassionately because it implies that it's society's fault that he can't do anything. He's just like a, a person who is deprived of all agency and is left to just do harm out of his frustration. Gurov is, is one of these characters, obviously, like he has no purpose in life um, and falling in love is the purpose that he finds in life. Um, and I think what's interesting about the story to me, I can't speak for everybody else, but what's interesting to me is that it seems like a concretization of the idea that love is random and the object of love is not the point of love. Like the person you love is not the point of love. The point of love is something else. It's that it somehow frees you from, um, I guess what a, what a Russian would call poshlust. It's kind of the, the cheapness and the hypocrisy and the, emptiness of bourgeois life um so so it's it's sort of i don't know it's kind of creating this very gossamer concept and dealing with it at one remove like i would say like last in the last episode i said that all stories are either haunted houses or or monster movies and Lady with a Little Dog is a monster movie and the monster is love and we never quite glimpse the monster. Like we just barely have glimpsed the monster. We see all the characters affected by the monster and their lives are destroyed, but we don't ever quite see the monster. And that's what's interesting about it. Um, you know, using your framework, uh, Ward number six is a pretty clear haunted house story. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, it even starts with the description of the house. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just thinking about your, about the, the monster in that case. Cause one of the things that I have not connected to about this story is that the only thing that we really see the woman that he's in love with doing is crying after they have sex the first time because she feels bad. And this does not move him and he's irritated by it. And he just wants her to stop. Maybe that's who they were before the, before the monster arrives. I, Yeah, exactly. They don't deserve anything but to be destroyed by a monster. 
That's what monster movies do. They destroy the undeserving. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So- okay, that's a good point. That neither of them neither of them deserves to fall in love. And there's nothing about the other one that is more worthy or interesting than other people. Exactly. Okay, okay. And then they fall in love. They can never be happy again. Maybe they're undeserving teenagers in a slasher flick or something. Yeah, like exactly, that. yeah. They're, in some ways, they are people who are set up as not deserving love. There's nothing special about either of them. There's no reason that they should fall in love. And there's no reason to think that they would be happy if they did. And there's no possibility of a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, and that's because they are the characters at the beginning of the monster movie who have sex. Yeah. Therefore are going to die. Yeah. And the the idea that love is actually just giving this new painful perceptiveness about life as opposed to union with your beloved in any way. Yeah. And the idea Um, that the monster is the one thing that gives meaning to life. Like the thing that destroys your life is the only thing that is really important or true about it. Yeah. I mean, that checks out. I, I like that. And I mean, whatever, like great, Eternal truth, you know. You can continue hating it. It's actually okay. <laughs> no, I, I, it may never be my favorite story, but I think that um, that the thing you're saying sounds really true. I feel like if Proust wanted to say that to me, I'd say yes, I'm with you. That all that's also true. But somehow this story saying it to me, it just it feels like someone just said it to me. It doesn't feel like it hit my heart, you know. Yeah, it doesn't help that he works so hard to make you dislike the characters. Okay, can I talk about um, Chekhov's other short stories? Yeah, um, please. Themes. Um, okay, so so the the short stories of Chekhov, which he he wrote hundreds of these, um, so, and there's a constant theme in them, which is about disenchantment and the ability to to love genuinely in youth, which society eventually erodes. And the ability to believe in things which is always corrupted and turned into jadedness and and um, you know the the willingness to believe in the magic of the loved one turns into the willingness to take bribes essentially in in Chekhov yeah and we get a lot of these a lot of them I mean interestingly he wrote a lot from women's points of view. And I think he does it very well for the most part. Um, so you get stories like there, there are two stories um, that I noted down here. One of them usually translated into English as the two Velojas, which is about a young girl who's just married a rich man whom she does not love. And she's in love with the, the little, she's married the big Veloja and she's in love with the little Veloja. And in the story, we see her being tempted into having an affair with this guy, the little Voloja, who she's been in love with for some time. But he just uses her and leaves her, and she's left only with the knowledge of how to cheat on her husband. Um, and it's it's just an interesting story because most of it takes place in the course of a sleigh ride with her and her husband and 
this guy she's going to cheat with, the little Velodja. And she stops and visits a friend of hers who's gone into a convent and looks at her friend, like sees her friend in the convent. And it's unclear like what she's projecting and what's real or not, but she's longing for this purity that she imagines in her friend. Um, and there are all of the details around it. And it's just a, a very kind of, I, I suppose, a rare, truly um, sympathetic and respectful treatment of a female character who is cheating in 19th century literature. Yeah. She's not treated as somebody who has made a mistake and fallen. She's treated as somebody who was left in a completely impossible situation and is making the best of it. And the best of it is unimaginably terrible for her. Interesting. And Anna on the Neck is a very similar story, except that the character, instead of becoming disenchanted and and cold, she's actually sold off to her rich husband. And she realizes in the course of the story that she's been sold off because she's beautiful and she hates her husband and she hates her situation. So she starts cheating on him in order to get money and have a good time. (laughs) 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 And it's it's kind of wonderful. So she, she is kind of ruined spiritually but we don't we don't have her being so much helpless as just turning into a kind of an asshole. <laughs> That's really interesting because I it, it feels like not far off from characters in the seagull, right? And and also kind of in the uh, periphery of the cherry orchard, but in the the seagull. The question of what you continue doing after you've lost your innocence and um, how sad or unsad it is to continue living your life long past the death of your innocence, long into your asshole years. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a major concern of the seagull. This is what I, this is why I, I, still love Chekhov is because he's willing to to speak for the assholes of this <laughs> world and show their pain and the way they know they're assholes but still have to get up in the morning <laughs> and they didn't see a way not to be an asshole they just couldn't they couldn't they weren't offered the job of not asshole they were only offered various kinds of asshole job so they ended up being an asshole <laughs> yeah I think that that's, I mean, just to bring it back to the cherry orchard, that's the, the sympathy as opposed to satire toward many of those characters is just like a, a doctor like dispassion toward the disease of assholishness. Yeah. And he, he never really, like he never lost sight of who was damaged by the asshole, but he still was able to, to see inside the asshole and report back. Um, it's really, it's really kind of magical. Um, yeah. Yeah. And unjudgmental. Yeah. Including of things that, that certainly deserve judgment. Um, and I guess that's maybe where, where ward number six sort of stands out is that that's a rare time when somebody's lack of innocence is actually punished. Well, I think che- what Chekhov's doing in that story and in many of his other stories is letting the story punish the character while he refuses to judge them. 
Um, so he, yeah, the point. he doesn't judge the character. He just punishes them. And he believes, I think he really believed that, that life punishes people for their spiritual bankruptcy. And that was our second episode on Anton Chekhov. Thanks as always to Adam Bear for our theme music and to LitHub for hosting us. And if you want to talk to us, you can reach us on Twitter at LitCenturyPod 